morning, uh, we return uh, to our study, uh, Keys to uh, Spiritual Growth. Uh, let me also just pause right here, and on behalf of Kathy and her family, uh, thank you for praying for her uh, in the loss of her niece. We uh, traveled up to Roanoke, Virginia uh, last week to participate in the funeral. Again, just greatly appreciate uh, the prayers of the church. I appreciate my son Jonathan filling in for me in the pulpit, and I know God blessed there as well. Uh, I, I do regret that we sort of had this break in our new study on uh, keys to spiritual growth, but today's focus, as you see there in your sermon notes, is understanding uh, my purpose in life. The connection between spiritual growth and life's purpose should be fairly obvious. Since the goal, the objective of spiritual growth is to enable me to fulfill my purpose in life, well, it's obvious that I need to understand what that purpose is. And so we're going to tackle this issue uh, by answering three questions. And let me also add right here, uh, this message is very personal to me. It was these three questions that we're going to raise this morning that I wrestled with in coming to know Christ. It was, it was wrestling and answering these three questions that brought me to Christ. Now, many of you know my testimony. As a teenager, I, in a very deliberate, intentional way, rejected Christianity. Turned my back upon it, became agnostic. It led me down a very, eventually very dark path where I hit a very depressed point in my life, uh, became very suicidal, and it was at my lowest point that these three questions sort of gripped my heart, and I began to wrestle with them, and as I did wrestle with them, uh, in God's infinite mercy by His grace, uh, He brought me uh, to Himself. And so the first question, as you do see there in your sermon notes, is the question of existence. Why am I alive? Well, look at Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 18. The prophet asked this very question. He says, why was I born? And as you see, he asked that because he was going through a very difficult time. He says, was it only to have trouble and sorrow, to end my life in disgrace? Uh, most of us have wrestled with the question, why am I alive? Is there really any rhyme or reason to life, and especially my life? And every person, and this was true of me many years back, as God uh, used these questions to sort of push me to him, every person that wrestles with these two questions is immediately confronted with two inescapable realities. I mean, it doesn't care, I don't care if you're a native out in Africa or you're a Muslim in Indonesia or wherever you are, it just hits you, smacks you right in the face. And the first reality, that we see is that we're born into a universe, a world that has order, very observable laws of nature. There's incredible design to this world. It's all like a huge jigsaw puzzle where all the pieces just fit perfectly together. And the other inescapable reality is the uniqueness of man that we are above all other forms of life on this planet. Uh, we have been given the ability to think, to verbalize, 
We make choices. We produce works of art. We can invent. We can build things. Uh, we possess aspirations, dreams, uh, and we have an innate sense of right and wrong. So you're immediately hit with the question, how do I explain that? I mean, how do I explain the amazing design that I see in, in the universe, and how do I explain the uniqueness of man? Now, bottom line, and I discovered this many years ago, there are really only two plausible answers. Uh, and here's option one. You begin with impersonal matter or energy. In other words, ultimate reality behind all things is just impersonal matter or energy. And then you add to that time and change. And then poof. You have what exists today. Then option two is you begin with a personal God. A personal God who created the universe, which would explain the incredible design. It would explain the uniqueness of man being created in his image. Now, if you choose option one, I think you realize that is the dominant worldview in our country today. And in the world today, this is the evolutionary worldview, the humanistic worldview. But if you choose option one, which leaves God out of the picture, reality is you can observe what exists. You can define what exists. But you cannot say why it exists. You're left with absolutely no basis for meaning, for purpose, or absolutes. The humanist, H.J. Blackman, He's uh, considered the father of humanism in the nation of Britain. He was very honest to his secular humanistic perspective, and he wrote this. He says, on humanist assumptions, again, beginning with that which is impersonal, just adding time and chance, and poof, you have what exists. He says, on humanist assumptions, life leads to nothing. And every pretense that it does not is a deceit. If there is a bridge over a gorge which spans half the distance and ends in midair, and if the bridge is crowded with human beings pressing on, one after the other, they fall into the abyss. The bridge leads nowhere, and those who are pressing forward to cross it are going nowhere. It does not matter where they think they are going, what preparation for the journey they have made, how much they may be enjoying it. The objection merely points out objectively that such a situation is a model of futility. Dr. Hugh Moorhead, who uh, some years back was chairman of the Department of Philosophy at Northeastern University, he wrote to 250 of the world's most renowned philosophers, scientists, writers and intellectuals. And he asked them one question. What is the purpose of life? What is the purpose of life? He then published their responses in a book entitled, The Meaning of Life According to Our Century's Greatest Writers and Thinkers. I would not recommend the book. It's very depressing. I mean, it really, really is. Uh, some offered their best guesses and acknowledged they were guesses. 
Some have admitted that they just simply made up a purpose for life. And many admitted they had absolutely no clue what the purpose of life was. And that if Dr. Moorhead knew, would he please tell them? Carl Jung, the famous psychiatrist, said, I don't know the meaning, the purpose of life, but it looks as if something were meant by it. Isaac Asimov wrote, as far as I can see, there is no purpose. Uh, Joseph Taylor, uh, a Nobel Prize winner in physics, he actually wrote a book entitled, I Have No Answers to the Meaning of Life, and I No Longer Want to Search for Any. <laughs> Professor Stephen Weinberg of Harvard, Harvard University, also a Nobel Prize winner, brilliant man, he wrote this. He actually wrote this, his own pen, as he was looking down from an airplane on planet Earth. It is very hard to realize that this all is just a tiny part of an overwhelmingly hostile universe, which has evolved from an unspeakable, unfamiliar early condition and faces a future extin extinction of endless cold or intolerable heat. The, get this now, this last sentence. The more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. The famous French philosopher Andre Morius said, the universe is indifferent. Who created it? Why are we on this puny mud heap spinning infinitely in space? I have not the slightest idea, and I am convinced no one has. Folks, those are tragic statements that should cause us to weep. It should cause us to weep as believers. People desperately trying to find their purpose, but no matter where they look, they come up empty. Now listen as I read portions of Romans 1 from the paraphrased message. What happened was this. People knew God perfectly well. But when they did not treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense or direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it all, but were illiterate regarding life. It wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen, smeared with filth inside and out. And all of this because they traded the true God for a fake God and worshipped the God they made instead of the God who made them. And it is a perfect commentary on our society today and much of what you see in evening news. So why are we alive? What on earth are we here for? Well, look how the Bible answers that question. There in your notes, Proverbs 16.4. The Lord has made everything for his own purpose. Would you please circle that word everything? Now, are you included in that word everything? Yes. You, you person. Yes, of course you are. Now, God created you, and he created you for a specific purpose. So what on earth am I here for? Well, the answer is found in the next passages. In Ephesians 1, in verses 6, 12, and 14, this phrase really is the answer to the praise of his Lord. To the praise, that's why you're alive. To the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1.14. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Talking about the redemption, the forgiveness, the salvation. Everything he did for us in Christ, he did so that we would praise and glorify him. 
Romans 11.36, for everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then Isaiah 43.7, bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. So why am I alive? Get it down in your notes. I was created to glorify God. That's why you're alive. You're alive to glorify God. And then notice that next thing. What does it mean to glorify God? This is the simplest way I know how to put it. It's displaying the worth of God by delighting in the person of God. It goes back to Noah's song. Discovering that he is enough. That he does satisfy the soul regardless of the circumstances or the situations of your life. So that's what it means to glorify God. It's me displaying the worth of God by delighting in the person of God. I'm alive to put him on display. I'm not to put Andy Merrick center stage. I'm to put what? God center stage. To demonstrate to all that he is worthy of our worship. And I do that by delighting in God. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied with him. Amen. God is most glorified in me, through me, when I am most satisfied with him. As an analogy, think of my relationship with my wife, Kathy. What is the best way for me to display Kathy's worth, her worth to me? Simple. By finding my delight in her. By demonstrating that I am satisfied with her and her alone. For example, if you ask Brother Andy, why do you take Kathy out on a date night every week? Well, the answer is not difficult. It's simple. Because no one, absolutely no one, and no thing can make me as happy as when I'm with my wife. That honors Kathy. That puts Kathy on a pedestal in my life above all other women. Now, in the same way, I display the worth of God by delighting in the person of God. Now, let me raise an objection uh, that not only troubled me, but many, many others. C.S. Lewis uh, struggled with this for a time. And uh, many Christians think this, but we're typically too afraid to say it out loud. It sounds, you know, glorify me, glorify God. It sounds as if God is on an ego trip. I mean, admire my beauty, be wowed by my power, praise me. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually said, it seems as if God is craving our worship like a vain woman who wants compliments. And this does present a problem for us because we're turned off by people who are enamored with themselves, stuck with themselves. And it appears God is doing that when he says, glorify me. But listen, beloved, listen. God is the one being, he's the only being in the entire universe for whom self-exaltation is a pure, selfless act of love. And the reason in that is because when God exalts himself, He's simply calling attention to what we need most for lasting joy. And that is God himself. 
In other words, when God commands me to glorify Him, when God commands you to glorify Him, that is, it's the same as God commanding me to seek my own happiness. It, it is perfectly synonymous. You can actually define Christianity, I have no, and I would have no problem with this. You can actually define Christianity as the pursuit of pleasure. As long as you realize that true pleasure is found, what? In a relationship with God. And in following Him. In other words, God created you to find your joy in Him. Uh, the psalmist wrote, this isn't in your notes, but just listen to a few of these. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Delight thyself in the Lord. Drink of the river of God's delight. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. I will go to God by exceeding joy. I like what John Piper, a wonderful pastor up in Minnesota, wrote on this point. He said, I find in the Bible a divine command to be a pleasure seeker. That is, to forsake the two-bit, low-yield, short-term, never-satisfying, person-destroying, God-belittling pleasures of the world and sell everything with joy in order to have the kingdom of heaven and thus enter into the joy of my master. So why am I alive? I am alive to glorify God, which is displaying his word for all to see, and I do that best by delighting in him, demonstrating that, yes, he is enough. He satisfies me. Now, look at the second question. Does my life matter? Does my life matter? Look at Isaiah 49, 4. My work seems so useless. Have you ever thought like that? I have spent my strength for nothing and to no purpose. And let's be honest. Everyone wants to know that their life matters. But if there is no, listen now, if there is no personal creator who cares, then we are living in an immense, unfeeling, impersonal universe where there is no rhyme or reason for life. Jack Oxman, a molecular biologist, another winner of Nobel Prize, again, brilliant, brilliant man, summed this up well in his book, Chance and Necessity. He expresses perfectly where that humanistic worldview that removes God, that thinks the beginning is impersonal energy or matter, and you just put time and chance, and poof, you have what exists. This is what he wrote. He says, change, change alone is at the source of every innovation of all creation in the biosphere. Pure change, absolutely free but blind. The universe was not pregnant with life, nor the biosphere with man. Our number came up in a Monte Carlo game. If he, man, accepts this message, accepts all it contains, then man must wake out of his millinery dream. And then in doing so, wake to his total solitude, his fundamental isolation. Now does he at last realize that like a gypsy, he lives on the boundary of an alien world. A world that is deaf to his music, just as indifferent to his hopes as it is to his suffering or his crimes. Man knows at last that he is alone. In the universe's unfeeling immensity, out of which he emerged only by chance. His destiny 
is nowhere spelled out, nor is his duty. But folks, Manoah is wrong. There is a personal creator, and he cares for you, Amen. and he gives significance to your life. Look in your sermon notes at the four incredible truths that let you know that your life matters with God. And my, I just don't have the time to walk through these verses. So I would encourage you after the message, you take these notes and uh, you look up these verses and they'll be a wonderful, wonderful blessing to you. But the first truth is that God, what, God created me. I'm a unique creation of God and there's no one else on planet Earth like me. I'm God's unique creation. Not only did God create created me, God knows me. He knows me. What did the prophet Jeremiah say? He knew me before I was what? Born. In Psalm 139, if you're familiar with that song, David begins to marvel over the fact that he cannot, listen now, he marvels over the fact that he cannot escape from being the focal point of all God's love and concern. He says, you know me when I sit down. You know me when I rise up. You know my every thought. I mean, he says, I can't even escape your presence. Why would the lowest hell you be there? I said, you know me. You're there because you care. And then he links that with the fact that what? Because he formed me when I was in my mother's what? God created me. His blessings are innumerable toward me. So God created me. God knows me. And God values me. Matthew 10, Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. And look how much I value them and care for them. And he says, you are much more valuable than the birds. And then those other verses talk about the fact that we were ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You know what ransom is, don't you? That's a purchase price that someone lays down to bring you out of bondage or captivity. You were in captivity to the devil. When Jesus died on Calvary Cross, when he shed his blood, that blood was the ransom price he paid to bring you out of captivity to the devil, to bring you to his glorious kingdom of light, love, and liberty, that you might follow him and know true joy, true happiness, true pleasure in a relationship with him. So again, if God cares for those little sparrows, those little birds, how much more does he value those who have been redeemed Amen. by the blood of the Son? And then, of course, God loves me. Romans 5 talks about, it. it's not that there's anything lovable about me. You know, you weren't, you weren't Cinderella. You were one of the wicked stepsisters. Uh, you weren't Sleeping Beauty. You were the wicked queen, you know. Uh, we were sinners, uh, marred by that sin, devastated by that sin. And at our very worst, God demonstrated his love for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now make sure you get the next statement down in your notes. Does my life matter? Here's the answer. Does my life matter? Yes. Because I was made to be loved by God and to love him forever. I was made to be loved by God and to love Him forever. Look at 1 John 4, 9 and 10. God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a sacrifice for our sins. 
And in 1 John 4, 19, we love. Why? Because he first loved us. Amen. Now, I need to emphasize a very important part right here. And please listen. You know, there have been thousands of books written on self-esteem and finding significance in life. And what the, what the world typically teaches, and even sometimes the believers who sort of get touched by humanistic thinking, we're taught that love is giving someone a mirror and then helping them feel good about themselves. That's the general thought this day. Love is just giving someone a mirror and then helping them feel good about themselves. Folks, that's not how God loves. God loves by saying, look at me. Become lost in the wonder of my grace and love for you as a wretched sinner. Stand in awe of the unmeasurable breadth, length, height, and depth of my unconditional love for you. See, to try to make people feel good about themselves by looking at themselves alone would be like taking someone to the Alps or to the Grand Canyon and then locking them in a room full of mirrors. Beloved, God loves you by freeing you from the bondage of self to admire Him. Do not look to self to find significance. Look to God. And spend the rest of your life becoming again lost in the awe and wonder of his love for you, a sinner. And also, going back to that statement, that yes, life matters because I was made to be loved by him and love him forever. Would you please circle that word forever? Please circle that word forever. I was made to be loved by God and to love God forever. You want to know, you want to know how much you matter to God? You matter so much to God, He wants to keep you around forever. That's a lot, folks. That's a lot. God is so great. He is so great. It will literally take all eternity, and we will never exhaust God, even in throughout eternity, to explore, admire, praise the beauty of His character and the greatness of His power. Amen? Amen. Amen. Third question. We bring it to a close. Question of attention. So what is my purpose? You know, one of the greatest uh, atheist philosophers was an Englishman by the name of Bertrand Russell. And he was intellectually honest enough to write this. He said, unless you assume the existence of God, the question of life's meaning and purpose is irrelevant. And that statement is true. And because most people do not submit to God, they wander aimlessly through life, never understanding their purpose. And again, that should make us weak. The tragedy is, if you do not know something's purpose, it's likely to be misused. It's likely to be abused. And all you have to do is look at the many, many wasted, wounded lives. I could put Andy Merritt in that category before I came to know Christ. But I didn't know my purpose. I was wounded, abused. Most of that abuse was self-abuse. 
So do you want to find your purpose in life? Look at Colossians 1.16 for the paraphrase of the message. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. Amen. Ephesians 1.11, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. So that last phrase there, you know, I discovered my purpose by what? Knowing God. I discovered my purpose by knowing God. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you come across a tool or a piece of machinery and you don't have a clue what it is. You don't have a clue about how to use it, how it works. Well, how do you discover its purpose? How do you discover how to properly use it? Well, it's obvious you're going to have to have a talk with the creator, with the inventor, or you're going to have to read what? The owner's manual. And in the same way, the only way to discover your purpose in life is to talk to your creator and look into the owner's manual, which is what? The Bible. Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Ephesians 2, 10, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us to do. Amen? Amen. So why am I alive? I was created to glorify God. Does my life matter? Yes, by golly it does. Because I was made to be loved by God and to love Him forever. And what is my purpose? I find my purpose in getting to know God. Now, as we continue our study, Keys to Spiritual Growth, we're going to examine the means that God has imparted to us, given to us, to enable us to get to know Him. And through knowing Him, discover our unique purpose, unique plan that he has for each and every one of us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you are a God who created us, who knows us, who values us, and loves us, even as we saw through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, Father, as we go forward in this study, I pray that you would grace us as we begin to look at the means, things like the Word of God, prayer, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the means that you've given us to know you, to admire you, to glorify you, to get lost in your presence, to be found in your likeness. And in knowing you, discover the unique purpose and plan you have for each of our lives. And that we would walk in that plan and fulfill that plan so that when we cross the finish line at the end of our lives, we'll hear those words, well done. Now, good and faithful servant, enter now the joy of your Lord. Which in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Amen. As the invitation is... Extended. Well, this is Lord's Supper Sunday. This is what we're going to do. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's right at 12. So we're going to go about 8 to 10 minutes uh, over. And I ask you to give this for that and that bothers you. But uh, we always believe it's very important in a Lord's Supper service.
provide an opportunity for the church family to minister to one another. This will also serve as the invitation. So in just a moment, I'll give you the opportunity to actually get up, move about, express your love, encouragement to one another. It would be great to pray over Todd and uh, Heather, some of you deacons and elders. Get to them, pray over them as they leave for Amber. Uh, I see Mrs. Knox here, of course, who recently lost her husband. And so just look around. And especially those that you know have been through recent struggles, adversities, uh, show your love. Give them your encouragement. Might be someone who's meant a lot to you. And you say, thank you. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your example. It might be your Sunday school. Thank you for your teaching. Whatever it might be. And uh, you may just want to remain seated and just continue to worship God. Reflect on what we just looked at. That God created you. That He knows you. That He values you. That He loves you. And rejoice in that. And then, and then after about five minutes, we'll, we'll, I promise we'll bring the service to a, to a close. And then even after we close, you can continue to minister to one another. But this will serve as an invitation. So I'll remain here to greet anyone that has a decision to the meaning of nature, coming to know Jesus, united with his church family, or desire to pray.